Hi, I'm Andrew McPhail. Welcome to another episode of Sacred Airspace. Carrie isn't able to be with us this week, so we're going to explore this through a special format that usually only appears in our bonus episodes, which are content for our paying patrons. If you enjoy the short fiction and guest appearances in this episode, please go to patreon.com slash sacred airspace podcast and become part of our inner circle of patrons. They receive access to a monthly Zoom hangout, a bonus episode every month, personalized correspondence with Carrie and me, discounts on goods and services, and the satisfaction of knowing that they are an integral part of helping us to provide for our families, to make our communities better, and to keep our podcast going. Once again, it's patreon.com slash sacred airspace podcast. Without any further ado, let's get into some short fiction from some wonderful guest authors. This one is from the class of 2014, and it's a Syria Judd's piece called... As I sank to the floor of the dirty Motel 6 bathroom, the pain started to kick in. My adrenaline flagged and the overwhelming fear returned. Tears stung the freshly carved abrasion beneath my right eye and I felt the stale air settle into the open split on my once delicately featured nose. The metallic taste of blood lingered in my mouth, some of mine and some of his. My arm lay limp beside me as I pulled my filthy, scraped knees towards my heaving chest. The two flights of stairs hurt just as much as I expected, par for the course. The telephone, though. Who would have known a telephone could hurt so much? I owed that to the cocaine and alcohol. I hadn't quite decided whether or not he qualified as a monster without them, but with them, there was no doubt. The door rattled at first and then shook on its cheap frame. If it held together just a bit longer, maybe he would grow tired and give up. I wished. I just couldn't fight anymore, though. My sins had caught up with me. I hoped God still watched and perhaps might even intervene. But he had no obligation, surely. I had abandoned my faith, my family, and my friends for a lifestyle that eventually destroyed the once bright-eyed girl with a promising future. (laughs) It wouldn't be long. My mother would answer the door, and two policemen would tell her that God is just as well as merciful, but that neither saved her daughter. They'd use different words, but that's what they'd mean. Then, multiple unfamiliar male voices spoke sternly behind the door. A profusion of random words next, and a panicked denial followed by a frantic appeal to reason. Maybe God had dialed 911 after all. Minutes later, the handcuffs hung loosely around my small wrists as I was escorted to one of the Rocky Hill Police Department cruisers that were parked in front of the motel. My bare feet padded across the cool pavement of the parking lot while the warm summer night breeze kissed my half-naked body. A sheer mist of sweat that lay on my chest sparkled in the moonlight, and I couldn't help but notice how beautiful the night was. The faint scent of cigarettes in the air made me glance up at the spectators. The entire mezzanine was full of them. There was a wide range of reactions, from irritation to shock, as they watched me recede into the cruiser. The red and blue lights danced along the horizon of the midnight sky. I might have loathed the impending consequence, had it not meant freedom. On the night of June 1st, 2010, 
I was arrested for possession of narcotics, intent to sell, and conspiracy. An agitated bystander called the front desk, expressing concern about a couple of individuals and the activity they engaged in outside our door. The police raided the room, where they found and confiscated a half pound of marijuana, 0.8 of a gram of cocaine, alcohol, and about $6,000 cash. Although none of the material belonged to me, I was guilty by association. Complicity. That's the technical term. I cut a plea bargain and served three and a half months in jail and six months under house arrest. The length of the sentence didn't matter. The judge could have sent me off for ten years and it wouldn't have made a difference. I changed, though, when I faced my mother. The turn my stomach took while walking into the courtroom made me weak. Because I was a minor, my mother had to appear as my guardian. <laughs> we hadn't seen each other in weeks. I had lost fifteen pounds. The moment I locked eyes with her, my heart fell. I had devastated her, and my concern for myself evaporated. It was only my second week behind bars when guards poured into my cell in the middle of the night, yelling at me about something I didn't remember. Finally, after pushing me against the wall, frisking me, and realizing that I had no idea what had happened, they stopped pushing me against the wall. I turned my head slowly and saw them cut down the dangling body of my cellmate. She had been hanging by her bedsheet, which she somehow maneuvered around one of the window bars. A mother. She was a mother. Like mine, but not. She said the pills got what the pills wanted, no matter what, and clearly she knew what she was talking about. I wrote her name beside my bed and whispered a prayer. I prayed for her child, and I asked God to forgive what she had done. I didn't return to sleep that night. My mind had me. I knew I was a traveler in a foreign land. And wasn't I supposed to hurt? Wasn't I supposed to fear? I just lived. Five o'clock in the morning every day. Wake up, sirens. Through the still dark outside, the day began. I rose and made my cot, my body still sore. <laughs> I was too fragile for that life anyway. What had I been thinking? Limped over to the small mirror above the sink. I greeted the face there every morning. In the beginning, I saw no glimmer of light or vitality. My eyes, taken right from my mother's face and placed on my own, no longer sparkled. They were tired, even raw. They had seen too much. My skin was swollen and vandalized, and my hair hung lifelessly past my shoulders. I sighed again. I was still a relief. Some sadness at the sight, but still more peace. As time went by, I began to heal. Every day I noticed a bruise fading and a cut covering over. My hair that lacked life eventually gained back its shine and my figure began to fill out again. The day of my court appeal and my second chance to face the judge, my eyes had regained their familiar glow. I had dedicated myself to restoring my faith and catering to my broken spirit. It wasn't easy, but I forgave myself for my faults and poor choices. I stood with the letter I had prepared for the judge as the guards walked me to the entrance of the courtroom. One last prayer. I was ready to go home. 
I hugged my mother so hard I don't think either one of us took a breath for as long as we embraced. I missed you, she whispered as a few tears fell from her warm eyes. I had only seen my mother cry on two occasions, both involving the passing of a family member. These weren't the same tears, though. Her tears that day were tears of relief, happiness, and love. I made a promise that day. I promised to never be less than what I could be. I swore my oath to God always to face my fears without an ounce of weakness in my heart and the faith that he would never overlook me. On June 1, 2013, I moved into my own home. It's another beginning in the life God gave me, the second chance to create. Soon I will graduate high school and begin work as an independent woman. There is still peace, relief too, but there is also ambition and all the experience to bless me with the knowledge of where I have been and where I should go. This next short story comes to us from Alexis Marcano. It's called Potential Energy. Potential Energy. That's what the book described on page 183. A stock photograph showed a potted plant sitting on a windowsill halfway up a tall apartment building, just sitting there enjoying the sun. That's all it was, the book said. The plant just sitting there. That was Potential Energy. Kinetic energy was on page 184. Another stock picture showed a potted plant in free fall, halfway between an open window and the ground. Kinetic energy is the energy of motion, the text read, such as something moving from one place to another. I can't help but stop at those pages every time I open the book. I don't want to, but when I see that falling plant, I can't think of anything except Carlos. I knew Carlos from the neighborhood. We'd known each other for about eight years. The cops were always trying to catch him selling. He sold, uh, not as much as the cops thought, granted, but he sold, and cleverly. He was smart. He really knew his math. He was athletic, too. He played a sport every season in school back when we went to school. He cared for the folks in the neighborhood, from buying the kids ice cream to taking care of chores for the older folks. It was June of 2007, and Carlos and I were talking shop behind the apartment building. Traffic came and went with the change of the lights, and the noises of the city joined our conversation. Man, I'm sick of this shift. That's how he sounded when he tried to talk through a cigarette. He took a drag and flicked ash down to the jagged pavement. Run the dope, sell the weed, fine, whatever. I can't even breathe for five seconds, and then if the pigs get me again, it's all over. I could tell by his darting eyes that even cigarettes weren't calming him down these days. He looked like he expected to see a cruiser any minute, and he didn't even have the goods on him. I was going to say something, but he didn't bring the bogey back for another drag. He just kept going. I went down to the McDonald's on Albany Ave, where you've been working, you know, he spat, and asked the manager there if he hired me too. 
He said he wasn't hiring, so I, I told him I'm your friend. Alexis, he's a good worker, you know? He gave me this weird look like I didn't know anything, so I said it again. What's good? Can I get a job? A siren began to wail in the distance, and Carlos ducked into a shadow as we heard the ambulance pass by. He continued, The manager acts like I'm some kind of... More sirens, this time fire sirens. An idiot. He just stares at me like I'm a crack baby or something. He paused. He was staring down at an old, dinged-up metal trash can in the alley. So I say, kick rocks, sucker. I don't need your seven-and-a-half-dollar-an-hour job. I pull more bills than your boss. He charged towards the trash can, but then stopped short and raised his head and yelled to the sky. I make six, seven hundred bones a day in the street. I try and go straight, and this is what the f- He kicked the trash can as hard as he could, and it bounced off the brick wall and rolled over slowly like a guy with a slug in his stomach. I didn't hear anything except the metal scraping the pavement. I looked him in the eye. Yo, do what you gotta do, feel me? Life don't last like it should. I want to go back to school. I want to get my life right, man, he said, looking at the ground for comfort. Or was it inspiration? They no future in the business. He tossed the cigarette away almost dismissively. And plus, they about to get me. I know that cat with the raggedy Taurus and the notebook be watching me. If I don't get out, I'm about to go in. Again, I added. Yeah, he said resignedly. Again. The soft sounds of regular traffic let the closest thing to peace that we were going to feel settle gently over the alley. I wanted to tell Carlos that I had figured the same thing, but I hadn't said anything yet. I needed to get my diploma and get some training so I could do something legitimate. My daughter already had the challenge of dealing with young parents. She didn't need the challenge of dealing with young, broke parents. But he turned and headed down the alley towards the side door. I'm going to grab my cell, he said a necessary concession to the fact that we still had three ounces inside and we needed to move them before the end of the day. I told myself that this was it, though, and I'd never said that before. I knew somehow I had reached the end. For Carlos, for me, for my daughter, for his family, for my family. And it all somehow made sense for the first time. Sell three ounces, hang up our spurs, get life right. I could deal with that. I woke up the following morning to the unmistakable sound of a door getting kicked in. I knew it wasn't my door, which was positive. I thought to myself as I looked at the clock radio. 4.37 in the morning and someone was getting busted already? Figures. Welcome to the hood. I threw on some jeans. There was way too much noise to sleep through. Footsteps have voices. After a while, you get to know what's what. The sound of a Timberland is different than the sound of a sneaker, which is different than the sound of a cop's boot. The cop's boots were running all together, one floor up from me. But there were a few Timberlands running in different places. One was running from the cops on the next floor, but there was another sound at least two floors up. Someone else was moving really quickly, too. I put on a shirt and looked in the mirror. I went to look for my hairbrush. The cops split up. Some of them were in the stairwell now, going up. The Timberlands from the top floor suddenly sounded like they were getting closer to my side of the building, and then suddenly almost above me. I couldn't find my hairbrush. <laughs> my brother had probably borrowed it again. I went to the kitchen, where he somehow always leaves it on the counter, as if it were a leftover ingredient. I saw the hairbrush on the counter, just beneath the window. Then I heard a window break, and for a fleeting moment, I saw a body fly past. 
I ran over to the window and looked down. Glass was strewn all over like confetti at some kind of twisted party, encircling the awkwardly shaped body of some unlucky bastard. The weird thing was that he looked fine, aside from the terrible shape his arms were making. But he wasn't getting up either. Where was the blood? Had he broken a lot of bones? I opened the window and leaned out, squinting to see in the semi-dusky light. Crackheads, I mumbled to myself. They do the dumbest stuff. And then it hit me. He hadn't jumped. He was lying face up on the ground, meaning that unless he had jumped out the window backwards, he hadn't meant to exit the building from the third story. I looked closer at the face. That couldn't be a crackhead. Crackheads go headfirst into everything. And then I saw... It was Carlos. I wanted to rush down and try to talk to him and see if he was okay, but the place was crawling with police and ambulances were starting to arrive. I couldn't be associated with him. What's more, he wasn't going to do a whole lot of talking with me in the first place. Time suddenly went by very slowly. Everyone watched from the windows as the paramedics arrived and loaded Carlos onto a stretcher. When they picked his body up to strap it onto the spine splint, there were blotches of brain and blood everywhere. It was a grisly symphony of gray and red that started by the corner of a dumpster and formed the outline of where his body had lain. I told myself a million things to distract myself. Cops are evil. The drug life does this. None of this should come as any surprise. I can't afford to be weak now. He would want me to carry on. I whispered every thought I could conjure. But at night, when I would wonder what else would happen to me and my best friends, I couldn't escape the sight of his blood and brains on the ground, spilled out as a testimony to everything he had wanted to become. That stuff that he had inside never got a chance to come out until death. The desire to do the right thing, go back to school, stop living in danger. It was all part of the picture. It had all been potential energy. I promised myself that I wouldn't have my potential energy poured out as I died. I swore to myself, painfully alone in my room on those nights, staring at my science book, that I would get all the potential energy out of myself while I was still alive. My kinetic energy wouldn't see me falling from a high windowsill. It would see me running to make up for lost time, getting far, far away from the place where time had caught Carlos too soon. And yes... I thought to myself, taking great care to memorize the definitions and the diagrams on pages 183 and 184. Carlos would want that. This next piece is from Serena Pika. It's called Daniel. Daniel will always be my hero. Some people say this metaphorically, but literally, if it weren't for him, I wouldn't be here today. When I was two years old, my mom worked in a warehouse. She would leave me with my grandma. 
My grandma made me something to eat that morning, as she usually did. We ate outdoors because it was a beautiful summer morning. Now, Grandma knew a lot of people because she cooked and sold her food in the neighborhood. An old friend of hers that she hadn't seen in a while came by, and they began chatting and catching up on each other's lives. While that was going on, my grandma had me by the hand. Unlike Grandma, I wasn't so much known for my food as I was for running off and getting into trouble. And it was a reputation that I had reinforced many times. I wanted to go across the street. I'm not sure what I saw or why I wanted to go, but I definitely wanted to cross the street. First, I tried to drag my grandmother along with me. That didn't work, so I squirmed my right hand out of hers and took off into the street. And, of course, a car was coming. My grandmother saw the car and screamed at me. I didn't hurry up and cross the street, though. Instead, I stopped and turned to look at my grandma. That made the situation worse. The car was closing in and showed no signs of stopping, and it was too late for my grandma to start coming out to get me. A man, whose name we later learned was Daniel, ran out from the sidewalk into the street. He pushed me towards my grandmother and out of the way of the car. The car hit Daniel instead of hitting me, and he bounced around on the pavement like a rag doll. Well, Daniel didn't just survive. He actually had no broken bones. We were amazed. Of course, my grandma was in shock and crying for joy that I was safe. Daniel did go to the hospital, and we went there to visit him. I'm glad the car hit him and not her, because if it were her, the doctor said, gesturing towards me, she would have died instantly. Her head is roughly as high as the fender on that car. My mother never stopped thanking Daniel. Every day was like the day that he had sacrificed his body so I could live. She would make him food and send him thank-you notes. My grandma gave him a room in her apartment, free of charge. When Daniel moved in with my grandma, he became part of our family. I never knew that I might want to ask about Daniel's family, or his lack of a family, but I was really happy to have him in our family. Daniel became another parent in my life, and that was something that I not only enjoyed, but really needed. I didn't know how much I had been missing it until I had him there. Daniel did all those things that a dad would have done. He took me to the park. He taught me to play baseball. He came to all of my games. Even the games where I dressed up as a boy for as long as I possibly could and kept playing in their league because I was a better pitcher than anybody expected. We would go out for ice cream afterward. He would talk with me about school and friends and challenges of growing up. As I got older, Daniel was in his final years. It became my turn to help him. I'd never really known how old he was, but it started to show. I needed to go to the store for him. My grandmother would get him whatever he needed when I wasn't around. Daniel would talk to me about life just like he used to, making something meaningful out of my future and how he really wanted me to be a successful person. One day, he moved out of my grandmother's house. I didn't really know why, but I think I sensed what he sensed, that his time on earth was drawing to a close. It was really sad to see him go, because after all that time, he was close enough that we wouldn't have minded if he needed lots of attention. But Daniel was proud. He wanted to be a giver, not a taker. 
A few months later, shortly after I turned 16 years old, Daniel died in his sleep. It was like losing a grandfather. I took it hard, even though I knew that it was completely natural and couldn't have gone any better for anybody. I always remember him as the one who showed me what love and compassion for other people is all about. He didn't plan to change his life. He didn't plan to do anything other than try to do the best he could. And he ended up caring about me, on principle, for years. That's the kind of love this world is missing, the kind it needs more of, and the kind I want to bring to it. Hopefully, I don't have to dive into oncoming traffic to brighten someone's life, but if that's what it takes, that's what I'll do. Daniel didn't stop to think about it, and I won't either. And now, because of what he did for me, his love lives on in me until I give it to someone else to carry on. So Daniel may not be here anymore, but unlike him, his love never has to die. This is a short story called Public Relations. The narrative is true to autobiographical life, but the details have been changed. My shoes glinted in their reflection on the tall, metal-rimmed glass door. I held the handle and opened the door almost effortlessly. The door pivoted on a hinge so that part of it folded back toward the wall, and I strode into the subdued, organized office. The open area included four work cubicles in the center of the floor. The tops of two office doors peered over the cubicle walls. A slender, traditionally attractive redhead with gold-rimmed glasses peeked out of one of the offices and then approached me matter-of-factly. You must be Andrew. Yes, uh, pleased to meet you, Melissa. We shook hands. Welcome to Third Day College Public Relations. Your desk is here. She motioned to the nearest cubicle, and I deposited my bag against the divider. Time cards are in the right-hand desk drawer. Lunch is taken three and a half hours after work begins and lasts for half an hour. I nodded. Almost without a breath, she continued, We need a press release. What's it about? I asked, sliding into my chair and quickly grabbing a mini pad and a pen. The passing of an active student, she stated as if that were another fact akin to the location of my desk and the length of lunch. How tragic, I replied. Yes, she said, her facial expression still inscrutable. Which student? She proffered a heavy brown tabbed folder, and I took it. The details are here, she concluded. Have it ready by three. Okay, I replied, opening the folder and spreading the contents across my desk. For a while I read, making notes on the mini-pad. Eventually I brought up Microsoft Word and opened a new document. The clicking of my heavy, typewriter-style keystrokes echoed in the room's glassy stratosphere. At 2.30, I printed a double-spaced copy and stopped by Melissa's office. I handed her my draft, and it read, For immediate release, Third Day College joins in mourning the passing of Leon Sylvester, an honorary alumnus of the class of 2000. Leon brought a vibrant energy to Samuel Hall and to the Environmental Engineering and Land Use Program. 
He was known for his ardent love of the Arboretum, where the Sylvester Spruce now stands. After discovering the presence of an inoperable brain tumor, Leon and his family prayerfully considered their options. They chose to give Leon what he had always dreamed of, a chance to participate in the study abroad program. Josh Martinez, a Costa Rica Christian exchange participant, deferred his travel for one year, allowing Leon to experience that year of faith, fellowship, and scholarship in Central America. During the 1997-1998 year, Leon received the Arturo Gutierrez Award for Excellence in Biological Conservation, and his paper, Trade Winds and Efficient Oxygen Regeneration, was published in English and Spanish. Upon returning to the U.S., Leon received continuing palliative care and celebrated his faith daily by praying with others also battling cancer. He joined the ancestors on August 16th. Condolences, gifts, and donations are being received at the Third Day College Finance Office, 623 Wright Circle, Polk City, Iowa, 50226. A celebration of life in Christ will take place on Homecoming Tuesday during the 10 a.m. chapel service on campus. At spring graduation, Third Day College will confer Leon's honorary degree to his sisters and Ida. The college holds the family, friends, and classmates of Leon and the entire Sylvester family in prayer. What is this? Melissa's eyebrows furrowed a little, and her tone had a hostile edge. It's a press release about Leon's passing. The press doesn't need to know all of this, she said, her eyes narrowing as she perused the page. I tried not to sound confused, but gave anything that could be construed as disrespect an even wider margin. Well, they already do. Uh, More than half this information comes from the articles in the folder. That's not why the articles are in the folder she said curtly, as if that explained everything. All right, I ventured. Why are the articles in the folder? So we know what's being sent to press. Oh, relief washed over me. So we should craft something original that edifies the dialogue and increases good exposure for third day. No, she said with flat finality. Seeing a flicker of confusion on my face, she added, We are going for simple. This is... Her eyes scanned the copy again. This is a eulogy. She sighed and kept reading. You can't mention the deceased's name. It's positive press for third day, I countered with genuine optimism. He's an amazing young man of faith. This is too sentimental. Okay, I relented. What needs to change? For a moment, we locked eyes. Clearly to her, this should all be obvious to a first-year English major. She pushed her glasses higher on her nose and perused the paper again, pen at the ready. She circled a phrase. He loved trees? The press doesn't need to know. He studied abroad. Not substantive. He had cancer? That's private medical information. We could receive donations from people who love trees, support study abroad, and hate cancer, I theorized, again focusing on the benefits. Maybe start a scholarship. That's up to the bursar and financial aid. She kept reading. Her pen quickly orbited several more lines. You gave the college's address? Uh, People can find it written on the college's webpage and GPS at any time they want. And invited people to chapel? That's a private college event. Uh, Leon and his family and friends are all welcome at third day, right? An odd silence. Went to the ancestors? She shrieked. What is that? I sat down in a chair across from her desk and tried to remain calm. 
Well, it's a reference to how scripturally we're all part of Abraham's extended family. All the children of Abraham are our ancestors in the worldwide family of faith, and they're waiting together in heaven. You clearly don't understand any of this, she finished icily. She strode around her desk and snatched the folder from my hands and made for the door. What shall I work on now? I asked hurriedly. Read the third day publication's policy manual, she shot back over her shoulder. I did. The policy manual mentioned very standard practices. Not to reveal the names of minors, to obtain recorded permission prior to all interviews, to submit copies to legal and compliance for prior approval. When I looked up, I noticed Melissa had left. I went home. The next morning, the gazette lay on my stoop in a frosted plastic sheath. At the table, I removed the paper and spread it out next to my rubbery pancakes. In the county and local section was a very small headline, Active Student Passes, below which the following was printed. A registered student from the college community passed away due to terminal pre-existing illness during the final week of summer break. I went to work as scheduled for the next two weeks. Melissa was almost never in the office, but when she was, she blew through like a Sirocco. Finally, on Friday, I boldly knocked at her door. Yes, I have your check, she replied without looking up. Melissa, it's not actually ethical for me to accept it. I haven't done any PR work other than draft that piece on the first day. There's no work to do, she said measuredly. You can keep doing homework until something needs to be done. I'll let you know. I looked out the window for a moment, wondering if my instinct was correct. Then the words came easily and with a sense of relief. With all due respect, Melissa, this is my two weeks' notice. For a moment, her lips drew into an uncannily long, straight, hard line as if they were trying to encircle her entire head. You don't need to come back tomorrow, she announced. I shrugged. Very well. This week, Poets' Corner takes you to a very, very new poem from February 25th called Projection. Television news, real, crystal clear footage, tanks rolling into Kiev. Suddenly I see it all again in an old, dim classroom, invading convoys jerking forward on those same roads under an antique leaden sky and the bulb's unrelenting burn. Occasionally, bullets burst through, leaving the scene pockmarked, but somehow never hitting us. We called that class history, a hymn of hope for the future, nails in the coffins of the past. How foolish it would be to call a class prophecy, as if course were trajectory, simple mathematics, Humanity's soaring arc of flight, and where it then must land.
And here's an older song called Explode.
Once again, I'd very much like to thank everybody who came along on the journey of short fiction, poetry, and music today. If you enjoyed this, you belong as part of our patron community. Go to www.patreon.com slash sacred airspace podcast and enroll today. We look forward to sending out your welcome packets and to interacting with you and seeing the art and beauty that makes life worthwhile. Please join us again next week for another episode of sacred airspace. Go in peace.